We'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 39. Last Sunday we looked at the circumstances in Judah's life, specifically the wickedness of his sons, but also the wickedness of Judah. And today we turn the page back to Joseph. We're going through this series, Genesis 37 through 50, the story of Joseph and Judah. And we see this contrast between chapters 38 and 39. In Joseph, we see integrity. Though tempted, he remains faithful. And so let's look at the verses together. I'm going to read all of chapter 39, if you would stand and follow along. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, And had fled out of the house. She called to the men of of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, 
He was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you thankful, thankful for Jesus and thankful for your word that you've entrusted to us. And we pray for your help in this time, Lord. Help us as we look to your word that we would see Christ, that we would know you, that we would love you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As we approach this chapter, these verses, it's likely a a text that many of you are familiar with. If you grew up in the church, you know the story of Joseph's faithfulness. But as we come to the text, I want to remind us of our themes. If you remember, we're going through these chapters, Genesis 37 through 50, and we have these themes that we see working through all of these chapters, the themes of place and promise and providence, and they're clear in the text before us. When we talk about the theme of place, we're talking about how God is moving His people. He's directing His people, and and eventually He's bringing His people to a place where He will redeem them, rescue them, as a foreshadowing, a picture of ultimate rescue that comes in Christ. Joseph begins this account in a place of honor. Potiphar's house, he was sold as a slave, but God blesses him and brings him to rule over the house of Potiphar. But but that's not the end of the story. That's not the place that God is working to bring his people. God is not done. There's a purpose here. And so as we go through the text, we see that God is going to rescue his people by bringing them to Egypt, which is where Joseph is. He's not finished with the story. And so God will move Joseph to another place in the text, to prison. But this is a part of the second theme, God's promise. This is all a part of God's promise to Abraham to bless his people. Joseph will suffer for a time. His brothers, the sons of Israel... And Israel himself, Jacob, will go hungry. They will suffer for a time. And their children and children's children will be slaves in Egypt for years and years and years. But this is a part of God's promise that he might rescue them and make them a people bearing his name. We are assured in this text that God is keeping His promise even through difficult, hard circumstances for Joseph. Which brings us to the third theme of God's providence. How can we, how can we doubt God's providence as we read through Genesis 37 through 50? God's hand is moving and working exactly what He has planned throughout this story. This is not just happenstance. This is not just coincidence. God is orchestrated and working through all of this His glory. And Joseph trusts Him. He trusts the Lord. 
And the pieces of the story as we look, not just in chapter 39, but all of this, chapters 37 through 50 are are like a puzzle that's scattered where the pieces are just scattered and it looks disjointed and we don't know exactly how this is going to fit together or what's going to become of this. We, We know, though, the picture is beautiful. God is working it this way, put together this puzzle as the truth that Joseph eventually proclaims God intended this for good. He purposed and planned it for His glory and the good of His people. And so we see these themes of place and promise and providence. As we get into these verses, I want us to see the the significance of of how the, the narrator and the writer Moses puts this together and really what is most significant in this chapter And that is this, God's presence is with Joseph. Joseph goes through a lot of hard, a lot of difficulty. But what we are assured of is the presence of the Lord is with him. God's presence is with Joseph. This chapter is bookended with that assurance. Four times we are told in chapter 39 that the presence of the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with him. Two times in the beginning, two times in the end, we are assured of this. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Verse 23, the Lord was with Joseph. We don't want to miss that. These bookends are important. We're being assured. It guides our understanding. Whatever circumstances come, blessing or difficulty, the Lord is with him. Do we, especially those of us who have grown up in the church, those of us who've heard the story of Joseph again and again in our lives, we know, we know that Joseph will succeed. We know the end of the story. We know what's happening. It's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. We've heard the story since we were children, but why does he succeed? Why is he successful? And the answer is, Because the Lord was with him. God is present and working in Joseph's life. As we get into the verses, verses 1 and 2 tell us that Joseph was sold to Potiphar. When we, we left the story of Joseph two weeks ago, he had been carried away as a slave, taken to Egypt. Here we find he's been sold, sold to Potiphar. Potiphar's an office of, officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, it tells us. And so Potiphar is significant in Egypt. And there with Potiphar, Joseph becomes successful. What, whatever Joseph is entrusted with, whatever he puts his hand to, is blessed because of the Lord. Now, this is significant as we look at these first two verses. The God who was with Joseph was the Lord. Joseph has been taken to Egypt, a land of many, many false gods. But what Moses, the writer of this chapter, is telling us is the Lord is with 
Joseph. And the Lord is Yahweh. This is the word for Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal covenant name of God. And that name, Yahweh, is used eight times in these verses, in this chapter. In verse 2, it's used once. In verse 3, it's used twice. In verse 5, it's used twice. In verse 21, it's used once. In verse 23, it's used twice. And after this chapter, after this account, it is never used again in the remaining of the eight chapters of the story of Joseph, except when Jacob uses it on his deathbed. And as it's used, no character in the story uses the name. No one, no one says Yahweh. It's the narrator. It's Moses who uses God's covenant name eight times. And by doing so, he's telling us something. He's saying he wants us to know something. He wants the reader to know what's going on. Four of those eight times tell us that Yahweh, the God of covenant, is with Joseph. And so we can understand as we read, even if Joseph didn't understand it, that at the most uncertain time of Joseph's life, when he could see nothing of God, the covenant God of Israel is at work to effect his covenant promises through Joseph. And that's throughout this chapter. It's not just in the beginning when things are going great for Joseph. It's in the prison that this name of the Lord, the covenant God, is with Joseph. And in this, Joseph experiences, as we see in the beginning, surprising success. Sold as a slave. And yet we see how the Lord blesses him in the house of Potiphar. Verses 3 through 6, Joseph is likely a hard worker, but beyond that, the Lord blessed the work of his hands. You read these verses, and it seems like everything, everything he does, everything he touches is blessed. Maybe you've known people like that. Everything they do, everything they touch is just blessed. In the case of Joseph, it's not just talent or or being in the right place at the right time. It's the Lord. It's Yahweh is with him. God is blessing him. He is with him. And not just blessing him, but those who bless him are blessed. God had said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. In Genesis 12, verse 3. And so, the Egyptian Potiphar, who, who is... Showing kindness to Joseph is then blessed. And Potiphar realizes, he sees something is going on and recognizes God is with Joseph. And he's aware that the best way to manage his affairs, his property, his people, his money, was to hand it over to Joseph. To leave everything in his care. And so he puts everything in the charge of Joseph except for his food. Joseph is handling everything as a slave. God has blessed Joseph. He is with Joseph. In verse 6, he left 
all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Verse 6 goes on. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now interestingly, Joseph and his mother Rachel are the only two people to receive that double honor. That double accolade. Was handsome in form and appearance. So you picture Captain America here, okay? Potiphar's wife is brought into the picture here. And Potiphar's wife is likely in the habit of getting whatever she wants. And she wants Joseph. And so here is Joseph serving Potiphar. At this point, Joseph is probably around 17 or 18 years old. And as we read these verses, we we have to recognize surely Joseph would have been tempted. Surely he would have been rationalizing thoughts in his head as Potiphar's wife is approaching him again and again. If nothing else, Joseph knew the scorn of his family. He had been rejected. He had been hated. He was a victim of great injustice. So temptation for rationalizing in his mind would have been great. But his response, his speech, speaks differently. He refused, verse 8, and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? No justification in his mind, just Integrity. I will not sin against God. Joseph knew that relenting would mean that he was sinning against God. Like David in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So often when temptation comes to us, we we tend to process it and, and rationalize this way. How? How do I avoid the consequences of hurting this person or this person? Or how do I get away with this and and, and not affect this? But Joseph doesn't seem to even go there. He doesn't entertain those things in his mind. How would I do this great wicked thing against God? He is committed. He is faithful but so is Potiphar's wife. She wasn't going to give up that easily with this speech. And so verse 10 says, she spoke to him day after day, and yet he refused. Verses 11 through 20 go on. But one day, when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment. I've heard messages in the past where Joseph gets blamed because he shouldn't have been in the house with Potiphar's wife alone. He's the ruler over all of this. So he's doing his job and it appears that Potiphar's wife just 
ambushes him and catches him totally off guard. He's doing what he was supposed to do. He's carrying out his responsibilities. And so what does he do when he is caught, when he is grabbed by Potiphar's wife? He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't give another speech. He knows that that is no longer of use in this circumstance. He flees. He runs as quickly as possible. He flees from her. And in fleeing, leaves his garment, his robe, in her hand. Now, Potiphar's wife is a skilled liar. Verse 13, as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us, to mock us, to take advantage of us. She crafts this story to get the support of other servants. Look what this Hebrew has done. And then in getting their support, goes to her husband. Now, this is, this is the crazy picture that's happening here. This garment that she holds and brings to, as evidence to her husband, this garment testifies to Joseph's faithfulness. She has it because Joseph is faithful, but she uses it to accuse him. And notice how she speaks of him refers to him as a Hebrew to these servants and then to Potiphar, the Hebrew servant, and blaming even her husband, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us. Consider the picture of her waiting for her husband. She laid, verse 16, she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. This garment that that proves Joseph's innocence is now laid in a manner to accuse him. And so it tells us Potiphar was angry. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And so he takes Joseph and he puts him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And He was there in prison, innocent, and yet in prison. And what would that be like for Joseph? Again, we've mentioned we don't don't get in Genesis 37 through 50 these narratives of how he's responding and what he's thinking and what does he say and how does he grieve. What was it like for him? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 105, verses 17 through 19, gives us a window. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. This is... Not an easy circumstance for Joseph. This is suffering. And so here is Joseph imprisoned and humbled, punished. 
As we look at these last verses, verses 21 through 23, we are reminded again that even in this difficult and painful circumstance, the Lord is with Joseph. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That is blessing to think that the the guard of the prison, the, the head of the prison paid no attention to anything that Joseph was put in charge of. That is God's blessing. The Lord was with Joseph. He's treated, he is treated, the reason he is in prison, he's, he's treated as one who's cast away, as a transgressor. And yet the Lord's presence is with him in that difficulty. Now each week as we go through the verses in these chapters, we ask this question, what does this have to do with the gospel? Justin mentioned earlier in the service that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. All of it. All of it points to our redemption in Christ Jesus. So how does this and what does this have to do with the gospel? Now, there's two pictures of the gospel that I want to highlight this morning from the text. First is this. Joseph was falsely accused and treated as a transgressor for the sin of another. Joseph was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. He was faithful to his father. Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, was guilty. But Joseph was falsely accused on her account and punished as a transgressor. That is a wonderful picture of the gospel and Jesus. Jesus was innocent. The Son of God who came to earth was innocent. Falsely accused, arrested, and punished. But his punishment was not simply for one person, but for many. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Offered once to bear the sins of many. Counted a transgressor on their account. Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus himself says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Joseph was counted a transgressor for the sin of this one, Jesus is counted a transgressor and dies for the sin of many. And in doing so, is treated by God the Father as a sinner, as a transgressor. Treated as if he committed all of the sins of all of those he died for. Again, if we go to Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We can see echoes beforehand in Joseph's life of the ultimate redemption of the innocent one, Jesus Christ. The second way this text points to the gospel is in how Joseph resists temptation. Joseph is put into this circumstance of great temptation and flees. In Matthew chapter 4, we read the account of Jesus being tempted in the desert. Satan comes and tempts him after he's fasted for 40 days. He hasn't eaten for 40 days and Satan comes and tempts him. And the Lord Jesus is faithful to his Father. Joseph's temptation and faithfulness remind us of that. But there's a significant difference. Even though Joseph is faithful, he is He's righteous in resisting temptation with Potiphar's wife. He is still a son of the first Adam. Now, what does that mean? It means this Joseph's righteousness, and he does the right thing, he flees, he is righteous in that. But his righteousness, though faithful and important, could not save him. His obedience could not save him. In Matthew 4, the second Adam, Jesus comes and stands against Satan. And Joseph and I and you needed this second Adam to flee temptation on our behalf. Our fleeing isn't good enough to save us. It is glorifying to the one who saves us. But it can never rescue us. It can never save us. I can flee, but even when I don't, because of Christ, I am kept in the Father's hands. Because it is His righteousness, not my righteousness, that God is looking on. Joseph is faithful. He is righteous, but his righteousness cannot save him. You see, we tend to compare Judah and Joseph in chapters 38 and 39, and and in one hand, we ought to. As examples in how we ought to live, we want to live more like Joseph than Judah. But do we understand that Joseph 
didn't need the second Adam less than Judah did. We can tend to think of circumstances and people that way. Joseph is more righteous. Judah is wicked. But Joseph's righteousness, like Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. Your righteousness and my righteousness is like filthy rags. And I and you and Joseph and Judah are all desperate for a true and better righteousness. One that is perfect. One who is perfectly obedient and holy. We sang earlier, see the true and better Adam. Come to save the hellbound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. We do not stand in our own righteousness. We stand in a true and better righteousness, a perfect righteousness, and it is Jesus. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, even for the sake of our good decisions, even for the sake of our righteous choices, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are desperate. We are desperate for the second Adam. Joseph is desperate for salvation in Christ by grace. We are desperate for salvation by grace. We are desperate for His sacrifice. And not only that, as those who understand that even in our righteousness, our own righteousness is as filthy rags. Those of us who know we are desperate, we are grateful for His sacrifice. We know we could do no good that would earn us salvation. Because of Christ, we are counted righteous, perfect. Paul tells us we are holy and blameless before Him. We're counted righteous on His behalf. And that He was counted a sinner on our behalf. His body was broken. And His Blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what we celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper each and every week. And we do that with joy because we know our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And so as we prepare to do that, let's prepare our hearts to partake of the bread and take of the cup by remembering Christ's sacrifice. And then... As we understand his sacrifice and that we are credited with his righteousness in obedience, let's seek faithfulness to him that glorifies him. And let's joyfully together proclaim that our hope is in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, you are good and you do good. So we praise you and we thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your love for us. 
More than anything, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We are prone, Lord, to consider our own righteousness as significant for salvation. That you like us better because we've done something good. But we know, we know, you accept us because of Jesus and his righteousness. And you treated him as if he had committed our sins. And if we are in him, you treat us as if we have lived perfectly as he lived. What an amazing grace, Lord. I pray, Father, for your help that we would embrace the truth of the gospel. And that because you have done that, because you have made us new, because you have counted us, though unworthy, you have counted us righteous in Christ, that you would help us to walk in newness of life. That we would walk as Joseph, who knew your presence is what matters. It's you that matters, Lord. And so we pray for your help in that. And I pray, Father, that as we take the bread and the cup, you would help us to take it in a manner worthy of you. And that in our hearts, we would remember and we would rejoice that we are saved because of you. Because your body was broken, we went free. Because your blood was shed, we are forgiven. Help us to remember and help us to rejoice in Christ's name. Amen.